According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. Return with me once again, where we left off a week ago in Matthew chapter 27. Matthew 27, with the death of Judas Iscariot. Verses 3 through 10. Matthew 27, verses 3 through 10. We left off with verse 6, where the blood money was a problem. The chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, It is not lawful. It is not lawful. Uk existen. It is not lawful. And some of the vocabulary we were talking about, Dan and I were talking about, as a uh, impersonal verb here. Um, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury since it is the price of blood. And never mind the fact that we're the ones that paid the price of blood. We won't talk about that. Uh, not lawful to put into the temple treasury. Well, that's where it came from, isn't it? You know, when they paid the money, weren't they stealing funds from the temple treasury? Uh, it's not exactly clear where they got the 30 pieces of silver. Did they skim it from the temple treasury? Did they have their own slush fund? Did they have... Uh, other money off the books that uh, folk, the Levites didn't know about. Uh, we don't exactly know. So they conferred together, and with the money they bought the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And for this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. So he cites Jeremiah, but he quotes Zechariah. And they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. All right. So here's where we're going to pick up again. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer to make sure that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are humble under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Dear Father, we thank you for truth. We thank you for the privilege we have to study to show ourselves approved. Father, I thank you that uh, we have the opportunity once again. This is a grace provision. Thank you for this uh, midweek service during the week, morning time, Father, to take in the truth. It is uh, in so many ways my favorite class during the week. Uh, just bless our time in your word today. Open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we are dealing with, we're ready now for point five, the final point of study in the outline. Under point one, we looked at Judas the betrayer, who beheld the Lord's condemnation. Under point two, we looked at Judas who felt remorse and returned the reward. Judas felt remorse and returned the reward. Remember the differences between remorse and repentance and uh, the issues there. Under point three, Judas went away and hanged himself. The gruesome activity here. And the, uh, the contrast in Matthew's account versus the account in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we have the information that he went, uh, he, that he fell and burst headlong. All right. And uh, is that a contrast or is that a, uh, is that a conflict? Is it somehow uh, inappropriate or somehow uh, uh, something that we can't reconcile with the Matthew records? No, we can reconcile them, uh, I think, rather simply. Under point four, we looked at the issue on blood money. And this was our message last week. Why it was that the funds were not acceptable. 
and other aspects in which giving is not acceptable in the Old Testament applications. Uh, money earned by sinful activity, the price of a harlot, the price of a dog, whether it was female or male prostitution, both were, out, uh, were unacceptable uh, in, uh, in uh, funds that were to be uh, received by the temple. Uh, blood money that has a specific curse attached to it, Deuteronomy 27. Uh, there are a number of things that deal with curses um, that uh, perhaps uh, come into play here in this chapter. Um, we'll, we'll see how much of that uh, curse in Jeremiah that's spoken of. We'll see uh, when we get into some of the Jeremiah references related to, uh, related to this fulfillment. Second uh, Samuel 24, 24, under point C, sacrifices to the Lord are inadmissible when they cost us nothing. And then uh, the blind, lame, and sick offerings are likewise inadmissible, according to Malachi 1, verses 6 through 8. I think if we were to take these principles and bring it into a church age application, we could find comparable principles uh, related to our own giving as unto the Lord. Uh, mainly, uh, must be cheerful. Not grudgingly or under compulsion, for the Lord loves the cheerful giver. Uh, different principles that we would find as well related to our own priorities in, uh, in grace giving. Which then brings us now to main point five. Even these machinations serve to glorify God via the fulfillment of prophecy. Via the fulfillment of prophecy. And so the recognition here, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. So is it a good thing that, Ju- that Judas betrayed Jesus? No. Is it a good thing that, uh, that the religious leaders funded the betrayal uh, with the purchase price, the 30 pieces of silver? No. Was it a, a good thing that the, the um, field that was purchased, the potter's field, is now called field of blood to this day? Is that a good thing? No. But insofar as all of these activities come together in a fulfillment of what God promised would happen, it works together for good because this is the way God's plan works. <laughs> all right? This is the way that God uh, causes even the wrath of man to glorify his name. And, uh, and all things will glorify him eventually. So even these machinations, these schemes, these manipulations, these uh, ugly, ugly things, they do serve to glorify God via fulfillment of prophecy. So this is what I want to expand upon today. I teased you with it last week, and I'm going to expand upon it this week. Uh, Jeremiah is cited, but Zechariah is quoted. Okay, And does that bother us? The fact that it says, then that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. And then you have words that are, uh, I don't know what your Bible does. Do they, do they indent them? Do they change fonts? Do they, uh, my Bible puts them all in caps. Uh, and they took the 30 pieces of silver. Those are all capital letters, small caps as it were. Okay. To set it apart, to let you know that this is an Old Testament, uh, Old Testament citation. Problem is, this is an Old Testament quotation that comes out of Zechariah chapter 11. Okay, and so what is this? Was Matthew just lost? Okay, was he confused? Did he mean to say Zechariah, but he accidentally wrote down uh, Jeremiah? Uh, were there later scribes later on that that where the error crept in, 
Or did the original text say Jeremiah? And if the original text said Jeremiah, why does the original text say Jeremiah when it's Zechariah that's being quoted? We'll expand upon that. In fact, I'm going to expand upon all of these. Under point B, Jeremiah spoke and wrote about a potter and his smashed vessel. So there is Jeremiah material related to a potter. Specifically, Jeremiah 18 and Jeremiah 19. you got back-to-back -back chapters that address a potter in a way that does pertain to the context of Christ and his first advent, the Jewish rejection of their Messiah, the divine discipline upon a nation that's going to come under judgment and wrath. We'll look at those verses today. And then under point C, Zechariah spoke and wrote about a rejected shepherd. About a rejected shepherd. And specifically, in that context, mentions the 30 pieces of silver. The wages for which that shepherd uh, was entitled. Okay, Not the betrayer of the shepherd. It wasn't the betrayer of the shepherd in, in Zechariah that received the 30 pieces of silver. It was the shepherd himself, the rejected shepherd, that was worth 30 pieces of silver. When you read through the Zechariah 11 material, verses 4 through 14. Okay, So we'll take our time today to work our way through both of those. Now, I've done something a little bit unusual. I don't normally do this in my slideshows. Uh, I've given you the A, B, and C, but now on subsequent slides, we're going to back up a little bit, and I'll give you the, uh, the subpoints of the A, the B, and the C. Okay? So, are you following that okay? You understand that we've got an A, B, and C that are all being listed under main point five. All right? And then now we're going to kind of back up and we're going to give the details in between the A, the B, and the C with the subpoints for each one. That shouldn't be too complicated, is it? All right. So Jeremiah is cited, but Zechariah is quoted. And how do we reconcile this? How do we explain this? Well, a couple of things. First of all, it is argued by many that Jeremiah stood at the head of the prophetic canon. So in other words, by, by citing um, Jeremiah, what you're saying is, in the prophets that Jeremiah is a heading for the prophetic portion of the Old Testament. And I'll read you a snippet here that I think is fairly convincing related to that. Others are dismissive on that argument. Um, Fruchtenbaum, for example, is dismissive of that argument, which I find interesting, because I think the case that can be made for it is, is pretty strong. So it's argued by many that Jeremiah stood at the head of the prophetic canon. And so you can cite Jeremiah, and it doesn't matter whether it's Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, any of the twelve, all right, that the quotation is coming from uh, the prophetic portion of the Old Testament. And we, we, we identify with that. We understand that the Old Testament was broken down into the law, the writings, and the prophets, right? The threefold division of the Old Testament was sometimes called the Tanakh, the, the, the law, the writings, and the prophets, okay? Doug, are those doors unlocked? We seem to have some questions. Okay, so let's read Lightfoot here. Um, again, the Old Testament is broken down into what's called today the Tanakh, the Torah, the Navi'im, and the Ketuvim, the Law, the Prophets, the Writings. And so the prophetic portion uh, could be either called the Navi'im, the Prophets, or it could be called Jeremiah, if Jeremiah is a heading for the, uh, the prophetic section. So let me open this up, Lightfoot.
All right. And don't worry if this is too small. How's that? Is that readable? Okay. The reason why it first pops up small is because I don't study with a text that big. All right? So if, if this book was open at home when I was studying and getting ready for this class, it wasn't open that big. Okay? That would scare me. In fact, it's going to scare me. When I get back home and I open this up again, the next time I open up this book... It's going to be that huge, and it's going to scare me, and I'll have to make it small again where I can study some more. All right. Tarathan dear Jeremiah to Prophetu, that which was spoken by Jeremy the prophet. Okay. Did you know his name was Jeremy? All right. How much this place hath troubled interpreters, let the famous Beza instead of many others declare. This knot hath hampered all the most ancient interpreters, in that the testimony hero is taken out of uh, Zechariah, and not from Jeremiah, so that it seems plainly to have been Hamarteta Mnemonicon, a failing of the memory. All right. If you ever want to, if you ever have a, a senior moment, you ever have a, a, a time that you have a memory, a failure of the memory, then you can call it a. Uh, a hamartema minimanonicon, all right? The problem is it's too difficult to remember that. <laughs> and any time you attempt to remember the phrase hamartema minimanonicon, then uh, you end up having to look it up anyway just to remember what the phrase is. A failing of the memory, as Augustine supposes in his third book, De Consensu Evangelistarium, chapter the seventh. Also Eusebius in the 20th book. Um, however... Uh, Lightfoot's going to disagree with that. Uh, but if anyone hath rather impute this error to the transcribers, or as I rather suppose to the unskillfulness of, the, of some person, who put in the name of Jeremiah when the evangelist had written only, as he often doth in other places, dia tu prophetu, by the prophet, yet we must confess that this error hath long since crept into the Holy Scriptures as Jerome expressly affirms. So in other words, everyone assumes it's just a scribal error. Everyone assumes that copyists of manuscripts that evidently Matthew just wrote, that which was spoken through the prophet was fulfilled. Okay? And so Matthew's not a moron. Matthew knows who, who the, where this is from. And, uh, and all he did was just written through the prophet. And it was, it was, a, it was, a, it was a moron scribe in later centuries that inserted uh, the name of Jeremiah. The problem is, is that we don't have manuscripts uh, early enough to show that. And all of our early manuscripts show Jeremiah the prophet being named. And, and Jerome in the 4th century admitted that this was, a, that this was a, a manuscript problem. Lightfoot goes on. He says, But, with the leave of so great men, I do not only deny that so much as one letter is spurious or crept in without the knowledge of the evangelist, but I do confidently assert that Matthew wrote Jeremy, as we read it, and that it was very readily understood and received by his countrymen. So Lightfoot is, is fully confident that the original text, when Matthew put quill to parchment, said Jeremiah the prophet. Okay, Jeremiah the prophet. Even if in the 18th century they tried calling him Jeremy for a while. All right, that that was a fad. That was a phase, and it's it's uh, not the case. We don't call him Jeremy. We call him Jeremiah. All right. We will transcribe the following monument of antiquity out of the Talmudists, and then let the reader judge. 
And so here's the Jewish legend from the, from the Talmud. A tradition of the rabbins, this is the order of the prophets. The book of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Did you know those were part of the Judges? Or part of the, I'm sorry, part of the prophets? All right. Uh, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings. Then notice, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the Twelve. And a little after, but since Isaiah was before both Jeremiah and Ezekiel, he ought to have been set before them. Uh, but since the book of Kings ends with destruction, and all of Jeremiah is about destruction, and since Ezekiel begins with destruction and ends with comfort, and all Isaiah is about comfort, they joined destruction with destruction and comfort with comfort. That is, they placed these books together with the, great, with, uh, with the treat of destruction, and those together with treat of comfort. So this was all the rabbinic legends and traditions for how they put the prophetic books in that order, in their Hebrew Old Testament. Okay? And how it is that they compiled them in that order when they connected scroll to scroll and, and put book to book, uh, linking them together in their, in their uh, order. So you have this tradition quoted by David Kimchi in his preface to Jeremiah, once it is very plain that Jeremiah of old had the first place among the prophets. So in other words, when the historical section was wrapped up, Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, okay? What we call First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings was originally one book. Um, so when they, when they wrapped up Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, where does that end? That ends with the destruction of Jerusalem. That ends with Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians bringing Jerusalem to, a, to leveling it and carrying them off into captivity. All right? And so... Now when it's time for the prophets, they started with Jeremiah rather than Isaiah. Even though Isaiah was earlier, they did so because of the, the theme of destruction is how kings came to an end. And so they wanted to open the prophets with that theme of destruction. And who better than the prophet that was the eyewitness of the destruction during, the, uh, during the, uh, that particular time of Israel's history. So, uh, very plain that Jeremiah of old had first place among the prophets, and hereby he comes to be mentioned above all the rest. Above all the rest. Because he stood first in the volume of the prophets. Therefore, he is first named. And, by the way, there's another interesting quote in Matthew 16, 14. Give me a moment. Don't panic. There, how's that? Um, when he says, who do the people say that I am? And uh, they said, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, but still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Okay? Why do they pick Jeremiah out instead of Isaiah or instead of Daniel or Ezekiel or any of the others? Because Jeremiah stood at the head of the prophetic portion of, of the canon there in their, uh, in their thinking. So he stood first in the volume of the prophets, therefore he is first named. When therefore Matthew produced a text of Zechariah under the name of Jeremy, he only cites the words of the volume of the prophets under his name, who stood first in the volume of the prophets, of which sort is also that of our Savior. Jesus himself used an expression when he said, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. All the things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. He used section headings to represent the whole entirety of the Old Testament. Okay, in the threefold division, the law, the prophets. And he uses Psalms as a heading for the writings. Because the book of Psalms was the first of the writings. 
Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, the writings, the poetic books. All right, so that's, that's Lightfoot's explanation. That's a fairly common explanation. So it's argued by many that Jeremiah stood at the head of the prophetic canon. And so it's not really a contradiction in the Bible when he says that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Okay, that is an explanation. Another way to reconcile is that when a synthesis of prophets are being cited, then the most prominent of the prophets is named. Then the most prominent of the prophets is named. And it's argued that what we have here is actually a synthesis, a synthesis of the prophets. Not only do we have the direct uh, content from Zechariah, but we actually have themes and subject matter that's found in, in Jeremiah. And so what we have here is a synthesis of prophets. Not strictly Zechariah by himself, but the Zechariah quotation along with the Jeremiah themes that are found here in this event, in the, in the 30 pieces of silver, in the rejection of the Good Shepherd, and the, uh, the national destruction that is the consequence of that. So when a synthesis of prophets are being cited, the most prominent of the prophets is named. And so we see this here. In fact, a, a great example of this is in Mark chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Mark chapter 1, which is real easy for you to turn to. It's two pages away from Matthew 27. Uh, Mark chapter 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. And then look what happens. We've got a quotation from Malachi and then a second quotation from Isaiah. We've got a blending. We've got a synthesis of multiple prophets. So as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. And so what we have there is we've got a synthesis of Malachi 3.1 combined with Isaiah 40 and verse 3. Okay? A verse out of Malachi and a verse out of Isaiah, and they're blended together in a synthesis quoted in the New Testament, quoted by the Gospel of, of Mark. And so does he say, uh, does he say, as it is written in Isaiah and Malachi? Or he just uses the most prominent of those two prophets. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Remarkably enough, because the Malachi quote precedes the Isaiah quote in that, in that synthesis, in that, in that snippet. So this also becomes an explanation. And maybe it's actually both explanation one and explanation two, which satisfies us that uh, we don't have a, uh, a mistake in our Bible, <laughs> all right? That we don't have, uh, uh, if, uh, if this is just a, a boneheaded error, if Matthew is such a moron that he doesn't know that he's quoting Zechariah and he claims that it's Jeremiah, then we've got an unreliable Bible, right? I mean, how do we trust Matthew in these other respects? How do we trust Matthew in, in what other details that he records, Okay. But no, I don't, I don't view this as problematic in any respect because I, I accept both explanations that Jeremiah was at the head of certain 
collections of the prophets, but also the themes that Jeremiah wrote about are contained in this episode. And that's what I want to handle next. Point B. Jeremiah spoke and wrote about a potter in his smashed vessel. In fact, if you want to go back through the Old Testament and search for references to potters, they're going to come from these very places. They're going to come from Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah 19, and Zechariah 11. These are uh, the three dominant places. There's, there's a, hand, a smattering of minor references elsewhere, but these are where you have dominant themes that are being portrayed. Jeremiah spoke and wrote about a potter and a smashed vessel. Okay, so let's look at it. Join me now in Jeremiah 18 and Jeremiah 19. We'll take them back to back. Okay, because this is, this is not a simple, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. But it's not a simple fulfillment of prophecy in the sense that somebody stood up and said, Oh, by the way, um, when Messiah comes, he's going to be betrayed by one of his disciples, and he's going to be paid 30 pieces of silver from the religious leaders out of the temple treasury. <laughs> and when he tries to return those 30 pieces of silver, uh, they're going to have to buy a potter's field to bury strangers. Okay, That's not what the Old Testament prophecy says. Okay? That's what happens. And when that happens, it's recorded in Matthew that this is a fulfillment of the prophets. But there's so much more that's being fulfilled. This is why it's, it's, the, um, it's really the glory of God to reveal such themes, to reveal such concepts, and then to have them fulfilled in these, in these events. So what do we see here in Jeremiah 18? The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise and go down to the potter's house. Remember, Jeremiah was a prophet. Jeremiah was also a priest. Uh, but this is not a message that's coming to him in the temple. It's not a message that's coming to him in the king's palace. He, uh, he has to actually go uh, uh, to the potter's house in order to receive this message. So go down to the potter's house, and there I will announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on the wheel. But the vessel that he was making of clay was spoiled in the hand of the potter. So he remade it into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make. And so we have imagery of what's happening here. We have a work in progress, and a work in progress that goes bad. All right, it goes bad. Whose fault is that? <laughs> that the potter's fault? Should have been a better potter? Okay. Or... Is it the case that no matter who the potter is, the best potter that's ever walked this earth, no matter who the potter is, if in the process of spinning, in the process of molding and shaping, in the process of fashioning, it's just sometimes lumps don't do what you want them to do. Okay? Sometimes the lumps of the clay as they're being formed and fashioned, they just don't shape the way that, that you intend. And so then what's the process? Start over. What's the process? Reshape, reshape that lump. But you'll notice the language here, it was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel. He remade it. He actually, he doesn't chunk it and start with something different. He doesn't chunk it and, and find other material, substance. 
He's using the same clay he was using to start with. He simply restarts the process and fashions fashions it again, refashions it. He remade it. It's a good term. Remade it as it pleased the potter to make. So in this metaphor, we've got to understand some things. The imagery of the potter with a spoiled lump in a remade vessel, it speaks to the remaking of Israel. It does not speak to her replacement. Okay? They try to, the, the replacement theology folks try to say it does. They try to say, well, Israel was a spoiled lump, so he started over, and now he's got the church. Wrong. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Because he doesn't change the substance of the clay that he's working with. He's still working with clay. He's still working with the same lump. All right? And the substance of Israel and the substance of the church are entirely different. Now, if he had chunked it and started working with marble or started working with uh, another material, then perhaps the metaphor might speak to what it is they're trying to claim when they're trying to defend their views on replacement theology. But that's not the case. The case is, is that he simply has to bring it into a tohu wabohu condition, a formless, shapeless blob, so that he can once again start molding and fashioning and shaping and crafting the blob the way it needs to be. And so you could think of this as first advent, second advent. You could think of this as um, the, uh, the nature of Israel when the kingdom is first offered but rejected, and then the, the nature of Israel as the kingdom is then secondly offered and accepted. Second advent, when the, when the nation of Israel is then completed in its, uh, in its final form. So the imagery of the potter with a spoiled lump and a remade vessel speaks to the remaking of Israel, not the replacing of Israel. Not the replacing of Israel. He doesn't just dump the clay and start over with something different. Which is what the image would have to be if, if the church is a replacement for a rejected Israel. No, he doesn't reject Israel. He's just very patient and works on it some more. Then the word of the Lord came to me saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does? So, don't just take um, my word for it. Uh, Understand the scripture explanation for the metaphor. Understand why Jeremiah had to come and watch the process. He actually had to see the lump go bad while he was staring at it. Alright, and watch what the potter does. And notice, deal with you. Deal with you. And he's dealing with them in the first fashioning. He's deal, dealing with them in the, in the remaking. And he's dealing with Israel in the final product. He's still dealing with you. Dealing with Israel. Behold, like the clay in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. O house of Israel. And remember, when Jeremiah is ministering, the northern kingdom is already swept away. He's speaking to the southern kingdom but he's speaking of the Jewish people as a whole, as a reunited entire house of Israel. At one moment I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, or to destroy it. See, the, uh, the theme that's here is the theme of warning. He's giving a warning. And that warning may spark a repentance. If that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning calamity I plan to bring on it. 
For example, he sends Jonah to Nineveh, and the message is destruction. Well, what happened? Nineveh repented. Nineveh responded to that destruction message. They humbled themselves. They, they threw themselves on the Lord for mercy. Okay. And so what does God do? Does he destroy them anyway? <laughs> no. He realizes that the warning message accomplished what it was supposed to accomplish. It can come about the other way, too. Verse 9. At another moment, I might speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to build it up or to plant it. Maybe he makes promises related to future blessing, related to glories, related to, um, you know, millennial kingdom, things of that nature. But then that nation does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice. Now what does God do? Does he have to hand them the kingdom anyway, even though they're a bunch of rebels? Well, I promised them a kingdom. I guess I've got to give these rebels this kingdom. No. I will think better of the good with which I had promised to bless it. They may uh, have to go through a time of discipline. He may have to uh, send them into captivity. He may have to chastise them until such time as they're prepared to accept that kingdom. Okay? So again, he may, he may give a message of wrath, which sparks their repentance. He may give a, blessing, a message of blessing, which might spark their rebellion, sadly. Okay, But as he gives these messages, how do they respond? And then what is his action going to be based upon their response? Now, don't get me wrong. Uh, if he speaks, uh, if he uh, thinks better of the good with which I had promised to bless it, that doesn't mean he permanently removes that promised future, right? Because if he's made unconditional eternal promises, he has to eventually fulfill those promises and give them their millennial kingdom. He can't totally steal it from them and give it to the church. But he doesn't have to give it to them today. He doesn't have to give it to them immediately. He can bring them through a time of discipline and chastisement and sorrow and wrath to bring them to the point where they are prepared for that kingdom. And so, uh, and this is, this is the nature. Again, go back to that image of the pottery. This is that nature again. He's molding them, he's shaping them, and they've turned into apostasy. They've turned into wickedness. They've turned into idolatry. Well, that's, that's the lump going bad. So what's he going to do? He's going to start over and refashion that lump and keep working on them, keep working on them until they are prepared and ready to become the final product that he has ultimately designed them to be. That make sense? And so this is where they are at the first advent of Jesus Christ. Because the, the herald has announced the, the coming kingdom. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus has announced the coming kingdom. And they've rejected it. They've rejected it. As a nation, they've rejected it. And he gets to that hinge moment when he tells his disciples, stop telling them who I am. And he starts preparing them for the cross. The kingdom is no longer at hand. The kingdom has been withdrawn for the time of their discipline. He will have to come a second time. And he says, from now on, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That the kingdom offer has been withdrawn until they've been humbled and brought to that point of repentance to accept the kingdom in second advent. 
And so we have these themes. We have these themes. And so, now then, verse 11 of Jeremiah 18, Speak to the men of Judah and against the inhabitants of Jerusalem, saying, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. <laughs> Isn't this great? See, there's another verse in Jeremiah. Is it Jeremiah 29 that people like to quote that, Behold, I know my plans for you, plans for your welfare and not for your calamity, that you may have a future and you may have a hope, right? Is that on your refrigerator? Do you have... Okay. See, the thing is, and people claim that as if that's their personal promise for their personal life in the church age. It's not. It's a plan for Israel. Why don't they claim this one? Behold, I'm fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Put that on your refrigerator. It's just as applicable to you as a church age saint that the other one is. Okay. You know, it's like they put bumper stickers on their cars about beating their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Well, I can show you a verse that turns that around. It says, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the strong man say, I'm a mighty man. Let him go forth to the battle. Those don't make the bumper stickers, right? All right. Behold, I am fashioning calamity against you and devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back each of you from his evil way. See, when God is designing your calamity, it's not because he's mean and cruel and he's a tyrant. It's because he wants you to turn back. The discipline is designed for your repentance. The discipline is designed for you to change your thinking. Each of you from his evil way and reform your ways and your deeds. But they will say it is hopeless. <laughs> it is hopeless. He's disciplining us for our repentance, but we're too stiff-necked. We're not going to repent. We're going to follow our own plans. Each of us will act according to the stubbornness of his evil heart. He's devising this calamity, and it's not going to work. We're not going to repent. We're too hard-hearted. It's, it's hopeless. There's nothing we can do. <laughs> And so what do they do in verse 18? They start devising plans against Jeremiah and his calamity. <laughs> so we don't like what the message is. Let's kill the messenger. All right. <laughs> like pastors today that lose their popularity when they start preaching against sin and all kinds of stuff. And whoa, you say, ah, that preacher quit preaching. He started meddling. Okay, Because he started hitting your hot button issue. All right. So what we have here, we have... The message, the themes that are brought out here in Jeremiah 18. Um, themes of discipline that are being brought about for Israel. Now, we get into chapter 19. More themes. The death of the innocents. The death of the innocents. And what is this field anyway that's being purchased? This field where they... Uh, this. Hakeldama, this field of blood. What is this region south, uh, south of Jerusalem, this valley of Hinnom, this valley of Gehenna? It, it was such a, a, a place of burning and a place of filth. It, it even lends its name for uh, an expression of hell. The death of the innocents is abhorrent to the father who must sacrifice his innocent son. There's so much in this. Let's go over to chapter 19 now. 
Thus says the Lord, I'm in Jeremiah 19, Go and buy a potter's earthenware jar and take some of the elders of the people, some of the senior priests, then go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom. This is the very same region that will be the potter's field where, where uh, the field is going to be purchased with the, uh, the 30 pieces of silver. Go out to the valley of Ben-Hinnom, which is by the entrance of the potsherd gate, and proclaim there the words that I tell you. It's the trash heap. Later on, this gate will be called the dung gate. Okay? It's got other colorful phrases. I won't teach you the Hebrew word for dung, but it, it's, it's, uh, this is where the servants take the, the trash and they burn it and the filth and they destroy it. Um, in times of great apostasy, this became a cultic center of, for human sacrifice, for child sacrifice, for the Moloch worship that um, Manasseh engaged in, for example. That's why it's being condemned here. All right. And say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I'm about to bring a calamity upon this place at which the ears of everyone that hears of it <coughs> will tingle. All right. Let's uh, make your ears burn or tingle. Um, this is part of the wrath, part of the judgment. We saw that in chapter 18. Okay, So again, keep these themes in mind. The potter is working, the potter is molding, but the lump has gone bad. The lump has gone bad. He has to give a message of wrath that will hopefully spark repentance. And so here's this method of wrath. Here's this calamity. He says, here's what I'm about to hit you with. And it says, uh, because they have forsaken me and have made this an alien place and have burned sacrifices in it to other gods that neither they nor their forefathers nor the kings of Judah had ever known. Because they have filled this place with the blood of the innocent. With the blood of the innocent. Now his wrath is coming upon them in Jeremiah's day because of the Molech worship, the child sacrifice, the death of these babies, the, you know, the, 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 the death of the innocent. Okay, That was in Jeremiah's day. I think our modern practice of the, the, the abortion uh, holocaust that, that we're inflicting upon our nation today is similar. Child sacrifice to the Molochite God. But now think about it. What does this foreshadow? All these innocent children being put to death. What's coming up in first century? What's coming up in Christ's day? God is going to sacrifice His own innocent son doing so as the necessary substitute for our iniquity. So the death of the innocents is abhorrent to the Father who must sacrifice His innocent Son. It goes on, uh, they fill this place with the blood of the innocent. There's this hakeldama, field of blood. Um, it's a field of blood already, even before Judas bursts asunder and his guts come pouring forth, Right? even before the blood money for the death of Christ was paid to purchase this field. See, between Matthew and Acts, we've got two reasons why this place is called Field of Blood, but Jeremiah gives us a, another reason as well why this place is called Field of Blood. And they built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as a burnt offering to Baal a thing which I never commanded or spoke, nor did it ever come to mind. See, when you've got a fertility cult, when you've got a sex religion anyway, and all of your, uh, all of your 
blasphemous idolatry is engaged in this activity, well, you're going to have some pregnancies. You're going to have some unwanted children. So what's the consequence? You know, how do you continue to have your free willing fornication and all that? Well, get rid of the kids, get rid of the babies. So, therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place will no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of Ben-Hinnom, but rather the valley of slaughter. The valley of slaughter. And it's interesting because the wrath that comes, the vision of this, about all the, the destruction that's going to happen here, um, when does this get fulfilled? I will make void the council of Judah and Jerusalem in this place. I will cause them to fall by the sword before their enemies. And by the hand of those who seek their life, I will give over their carcasses as food for the birds of the sky and the beasts of the earth. I will make this city a desolation and an object of, hiss of hissing. Everyone who passes by it will be astonished and hiss because of all its disasters. I will make them eat. This is not pleasant right before lunch. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and the flesh of their daughters, and they will eat one another's flesh in the siege. When, you know, when you're a nation under siege and the food is gone, what do you start doing? One another's flesh in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life will distress them. And so we have this. This is uh, hideous, and it's... Uh, in its pronouncement. Then you are to break the jar in the sight of the men who accompany you. Just take that jar and smash it right in front of all of them. And say, thus says the Lord of hosts, just so will I break this people and this city, even as one breaks a potter's vessel, which cannot again be repaired. See, as long as it's still a lump, you can refashion it, you can reshape it, you can make a new vessel out of it. But as soon as it's a finished vessel, a finished vessel off the wheel, hardened, baked, complete, you know, painted, decorated, all the rest of that. If it's smashed, it's over. It's over. And they will bury in Topheth because there is no other place for burial. We're running out of burial grounds. Why was it they needed to purchase uh, the potter's field? They were running out of burial grounds. They needed a place to bury the strangers. In any event, this is how I will treat this place and its inhabitants, declares the Lord, so as to make this city like Topheth. All right, now, this is, uh, these are the two messages of Jeremiah that center on potters or pottery. Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah 19. These are the themes, all right? The themes that we recognize now are applicable during the life of Christ as the nation of Israel rejects their Messiah, as they reject their kingdom, as First Advent is going to give way to the necessity now of a Second Advent to return a second time to provide the kingdom for them. Um, think about this, though. Anytime you're in a prophet message like this, um, what does he have in mind? What does he have in mind? It's a good exercise. Like, um, here's Jeremiah or Isaiah, any of these early prophets. They're looking ahead and they say, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. So, are they looking forward to the Babylonian destruction? Are they looking forward to the Roman destruction? And if they're looking forward to the Roman destruction, are they looking forward to Titus in 70 A.D.? Or are they looking forward to eschatological Roman destruction in the tribulation? Okay. And here's where we've got to be careful. Because in many of these passages, 
It's actually looking forward to multiple fulfillments. It's looking forward to multiple eventual fulfillments. And we have a huge clue by the fact that, see, in Jeremiah, we've got to consider, we're looking forward. Okay, prophets are always looking forward. In Jeremiah, it's pre-exile, it's pre-captivity, it's pre-Babylon. So Jeremiah could be speaking about the Babylonian captivity, but he could be speaking about the Roman destruction. And if he's speaking about the Roman destruction, is he speaking about Titus in 70 A.D.? Or is he speaking about Antichrist in, in the end times? And we've got puzzles we better be careful with and not just assume. Now, fortunately, guess what? Jeremiah is complimented by Zechariah. And here, here's a huge clue for you, folks. Zechariah is after the Babylonian destruction. <laughs> so he can't be looking ahead to the Babylonian destruction. He must be looking ahead to the Roman destruction. And if he's looking ahead to the Roman destruction, which destruction is he looking ahead to? Titus in 70 AD or Antichrist in the tribulation? All right. We do the same thing with Jesus when he's giving his prophecies. Is he about Jerusalem's destruction? Obviously, Jesus can't be talking about the Babylonian destruction. He must be talking about the Roman destruction. But which one? Is he talking about 70 A.D. with, with Titus? Or is he talking about Antichrist in the tribulation? In the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, 25, I think it's a legitimate question to ask. But then what do you do when you get to the Apostle John in the book of Revelation? And he has a message that you combine together with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Zechariah and Jesus. And now you've got the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. And he's speaking of a future destruction of Jerusalem. And that can't be 70 A.D. unless you're a preterist and trying to force Revelation into the, into the 60s. If you accept the reality that Revelation was written in the 90s, after 70 A.D., then those prophetic messages have to be eschatological. They have to be Antichrist in the tribulation. Okay? Does is, is all that make sense? You just got about two weeks of eschatology that, that we normally teach in Kiev, Ukraine. <laughs> you know, showing them the various viewpoints of the various prophets. How the, the ones before Babylon looked forward and they could have seen any number of Jerusalem destructions. They could have seen the Babylonian, the first Roman, or the second Roman destructions. But prophets, prophets like Haggai and Zechariah, or Jesus, are after the Babylonian captivity. They can't be looking forward to the Babylonian destruction. They must be looking forward to the Roman destruction. But there's two Roman destructions. Which one? 70 A.D. or tribulation? End times. And then finally, when you get to the Apostle John... There's no options left. 70 A.D. is past. 70 A.D. is concluded. You're looking forward now to another Jerusalem destruction. That one has to be end times. That one has to be Antichrist in the tribulation. So, useful exercise. And I, and I recommend any time you're reading a passage that's warning about the destruction of Jerusalem, just back off and say, now wait a minute. You could view this a number of different ways and possibly multiple ways in the same message. Okay? You would do the same thing when you talk about regathering. 
promises to regather the Jewish people. Okay? Is that Ezra and Nehemiah bringing them back from the Babylonian captivity? Or is that regathering Jesus at Second Advent and bringing them back from the four corners of the earth into the millennial kingdom? You've got regathering promises and it could be one or the other. You better rightly divide the, the word of truth. Understand what the scatterings are about. Understand what the regatherings are about. Understand what the destructions of Jerusalem are all about. And which context is in focus in which application. All right, over to Zechariah 11. Now, Zechariah spoke and wrote about a rejected shepherd. About a rejected shepherd. So we get to Zechariah 11. And... You have, again, a potter, just like we had a potter in, in uh, Jeremiah. And uh, it's interesting. You don't have a field. You've got a potter in verse 13. Um, and the potter is receiving the money. And, um, but no field is purchased. So again, what we see what we're dealing with is we're dealing with themes that are found in Jeremiah and Zechariah combined. What do we have in Zechariah? A rejected shepherd. Hmm. All right, under point one. We have everything I just gave you before. <laughs> the links between Zechariah and Jeremiah are important. The connections between Jeremiah's prophecy and Zechariah's prophecy are important because Zechariah follows the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem. It helps us to understand what it is these themes are truly dealing with. In other words, it keeps us from limiting Jeremiah's scope to only a Babylonian fulfillment. All right? Because by the time Zechariah is ministering, that's over and done with. The links between Zechariah and Jeremiah are important because Zechariah follows the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem and looks forward to the Roman destruction of Jerusalem. Or destruction is plural. Again, if we're going to be thinking about the Roman destruction of Jerusalem, we better be very clear. Are we talking... First century, historic, are we talking tribulation, prophetic? And so it's good that Jeremiah doesn't stand alone. It's good that those messages of, of wrath and destruction aren't limited to Jeremiah's messages. Otherwise, we might think that uh, there's, there's nothing further to be, to be gleaned after the Babylonian uh, experience. But when Zechariah comes back and, and revisits this theme related to the, uh, to the, uh, to the uh, uh, potter and the 30 pieces of silver, we realize that there's much more that is yet to be fulfilled. And they're going to be fulfilled in the rejection of Christ, the good shepherd. That's what we see here. Now, uh, this is not an easy chapter, and it's one that I... Hesitate to teach in three minutes, <laughs> okay, before the end of the hour. Um, open your doors, O Lebanon, that a fire may feed on your cedars. Wail, O Cyprus, for the cedar has fallen. 
because the glorious trees have been destroyed. Wail, O oaks of Bashan, for the impenetrable forest has come down. There is a sound of the shepherds' wail, for their glory is ruined. There's a sound of young lions roar for the pride of the Jordan is ruined. Thus says the Lord, my God, pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. All right. So Jeremiah had an assignment. He had to go out to the potter's house and he had to watch what was going on. He had to take a vessel. He had to smash it. Part of the pantomime, you know, dramatization that would take place uh, like Ezekiel had to do when he laid on one side and rolled over to the other side. Um, Ezekiel had to bake bread over a fire of human dung. I mean, yuck. Um, these prophets had to, Isaiah had to walk around naked for 20 years. We had, these prophets had to deal with a lot of um, uh, unusual activities. Okay? They didn't have PowerPoint back then. They had other things they had to do for visual aids and illustrations. Well, Zechariah has to do some shepherding. Part of his assignment is to pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. You know, why, why bother? If it's doomed to slaughter, who cares? You know, uh, shepherding's hard work. You gotta, you gotta, you gotta defend against lions. You gotta defend against bears. You've gotta, you gotta keep an eye on the the ones that are limping. Find out why they're limping. You gotta bind up the broken. You gotta heal the sick. Uh, the ones that wander off, you gotta go wander off. You gotta, you know, bring them back. Okay, that's a lot of work to shepherd. And if the if the if the dumb thing's doomed to slaughter anyway, well then who cares? Why bother? You know, here comes a bear. I'm not going to fight the bear. The sheep are going to die anyway. Let the bear have his lunch. Right? But Zechariah has to be a faithful shepherd. Even though the, the flock is doomed. Jesus has to be a faithful shepherd. Jesus is the good shepherd, we're told in John 10. Even though the flock is doomed. He still loves them to the end. He loved his own. He loved them to the end even after they rejected him. And he's on the cross praying, Father, do not hold this sin against them. They don't know what they do. Pasture the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slay them and go unpunished. Each of those who sell them says, Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. Oh yeah, praise Jesus, brother. You know, you get these churches all into their prosperity, all making money, all happy, happy-go-lucky because they're thriving in this life. And they are as ugly as the pit of hell. And yet they use religious language. Praise the Lord. Blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. Obviously, I mean, wasn't this the Ray Lewis quote over the weekend? Did you see that on the Super Bowl weekend? Obviously, God has blessed him with Super Bowl victories, with, with uh, uh, financial success. He can't be a murderer. God wouldn't let a murderer get away with that. Okay? So, uh, yeah, his defense over being innocent of the murder he was accused of is his wealth, his team's success in the football field. And the Baltimore Ravens win the Super Bowl again. Obviously, that means God loves Ray Lewis. And Ray Lewis is not a murderer. And blessed be the Lord, for I have become rich. Obviously, God's shining on us because we have all this money. Mm. So I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter. Verse 7, I pastured the flock doomed to slaughter. Well, we'll come back to this next week. We'll deal with Zechariah's message. We'll wrap up the 30 pieces of silver. And we'll be ready for trials 4, 5, and 6 
Jesus still has to stand before Pilate, Herod, and Pilate before uh, before they put him on the cross. So we'll uh, we'll wrap up Zechariah next week. Thank you, Father, for truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Bless our uh, continued studies in this uh, in this class. Thank you for the uh, for all of the fulfillments that our Savior was so faithful to achieve. We thank you in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.